0: When my kids were younger, I have four kids, and when they were younger, I made sure that our house was always filled with books. I loved to read, and I wanted to pass that love of reading on to my kids. So we had so many different children's books that we would read. But one book in particular was a favorite for all four of my kids. It's actually two books. There's um, these books called either When I Was a Girl I Dreamed or When I Was a Boy I Dreamed. One for girls, one for boys. And my girls and my boys both loved these books. We still have them in our house today. We actually have them signed by the author. They're special books to us. And I want to read you the opening lines. Both books start out the same way. The books start like this. When I was a girl or a boy, I dreamed great dreams of who I'd be and where, of places near and journeys far adventures wild and rare and then this book it goes on to explore all of these possibilities of what this little boy or little girl might grow up to become it's things like a deep sea explorer or a veterinarian or a sports star or a teacher or the president of the united states and all of my kids loved this book and our conversations after reading the book were always so much fun because of course we ended up asking well what do you think what do you want to be when you grow up. And you know, if you ask a little kid, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Nobody says like data analysis, right? Like that's just not the answer they give. There's nothing wrong with data analysis. If that's your job, that's fantastic. But that's not what we hear from little kids. My daughter Ashlyn, she went through a season where when I would ask her, hey, what do you, what do you want to be when you grow up? She said, sparkle fairy princess. (laughs) And it was really funny because I was asking her permission yesterday, letting her know like, hey, I wanted to share this tomorrow when I teach. Is that okay? And she doesn't even really remember this, but I'm telling her and she goes, you know, I kind of still want to be a sparkle fairy princess. (laughs) And I was like, me too, me too, girlfriend. (laughs) So anyway, we ask kids these questions. We read books like when I was a girl, I dreamed. And we see in our kids this response of like, Yes, like this is a longing that I have, a longing for significance, a longing to leave my mark on the world. And I would argue that the reason that is present in our kids, and if we're honest, it's present in us, is because it was placed there by God. Because what we do with our productive hours actually flows out of who we are and out of who God created us to be. We have a desire to make a difference, to make an impact in the world around us, and that's a God-given desire. Now, I was preparing for this message, and I I looked at the latest Gallup poll. Every year, the Gallup organization does a state-of-the-workforce poll, and it's actually global in its um, spectrum, but it also breaks down the data into individual countries. And the good news is that Americans report some of the highest levels of satisfaction with their jobs. We are some of the most engaged people who are thriving, who find that our work satisfies our desire to use our skills, to make the world a better place. We report some of the highest levels of satisfaction across the entire globe. But the bad news is 31% of Americans report feeling engaged and thriving at work. So that means that nearly seven out of every 10 people that you come into contact with are not thriving at work. They are not engaged. They don't feel like the work that they're doing makes a difference. Americans also report incredibly high levels of stress. 84% of Americans report feeling that stress impacts their daily life, their behavior, their mental health. And guess what the two top contributors to stress are? Just take a guess. Anybody? Work is one. What else? (laughs) Finances are the other. And we know work and money are intertwined, right? So how do we reconcile what we know about being human? That there's a desire in each of us to live our life in such a way that we make a difference. And the reality that almost 7 out of 10 of us are frustrated and disappointed and discouraged in our jobs. We have to reckon with that somehow. And that's what we're gonna do this morning. And the way that I wanna do it, first, I wanna help us build a biblical theology of work. So we're gonna look at kind of four puzzle pieces to help us have a broad, inclusive, expansive understanding of the way that we, as followers of Jesus, should be viewing our work. And then after that, what we're gonna do is be like, okay, let's apply it. How does this matter for us on Monday morning or this week on Tuesday morning? So that's where we're going. Puzzle piece number one that we're going to start with is called the creation mandate. Now, if you begin a good story, where do you begin? At the beginning, right? So that's where we're going to start today. We are going to open our Bibles to page one, Genesis 1-1. Who knows off the top of your head, what are the first couple of words in our Bibles? In the beginning, God created. We can just pause right there. So Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is a poem about creation. And in this poem, we see God, sovereign God of the universe, creating. He's filling and forming and shaping and molding. He's working for six days of creation. And then on the sixth day, he creates man, Adam and Eve. Adam just means human. Adam, a prototype for all of us. He creates man and places him in this garden called Eden. We're gonna pick up the scripture in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 28. This is what theologians call the creation mandate. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, we're gonna pause there and back up real quick. The phrase image of God was actually a very common phrase in the ancient Near East but the thing is it was only ever applied to the rulers the pharaoh the king it was a term applied to royalty because in the cultural view the ruler the king the pharaoh was godlike was like a semi deity and everybody else was the common folks worthless had to do the grunt work of society and the king would live the life of leisure and so right from the beginning genesis chapter 1 these very first words in the Bible are, are just shocking. They're subversive. They are so countercultural because what we see here is, first of all, God working. He's not leaving the work to the minions, right? Like, I guess there were no minions in the beginning, but nonetheless, nonetheless, he's working. He's creating, right? And then he creates people, the prototype for humans, and he gives them this royal image. He created kings and queens to rule with him. That's you and I. We continue to bear that image. We were created in the image of God. And as god continues to give this creation mandate he gives this blessing to adam and eve and it's filled with kingly language to multiply to rule to subdue these are the activities of royalty not of the common folk so right from the beginning this story is unlike any other story there's creation narratives all over the ancient near east and there's similarities in some of them But nothing like this, nothing where God chooses to partner with us, with humans, to rule and reign together. And yet that is what happens in our creation narrative. The creation mandate kind of has a part two that you find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. I want to read it to you. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. Eden is a Hebrew word that means delight. To work it and to take care of it that word work that is the hebrew word abad and the word abad is really interesting because it can be translated three different ways abad means to work the way that we see it here but abad can also be translated as service to or as worship as worship so there is something about the work we were created to carry out that Is also worship, our work as worship. We need to keep that in our mind as we continue talking this morning. Tim Keller was a great thinker and theologian, and he spent a lot of his life talking about this very topic, about work and faith and how they intersect. And he has such a wonderful definition of work that I want to share with you this morning. Tim Keller said that work is when we rearrange God's raw creation, the, the, just the, the raw elements that are present in God's creation or in any given do- domain, and we work to take those raw elements and to make the world a place where people can thrive and flourish that's such a beautiful definition of work and just in case you're listening right now thinking well i don't work like i don't ha- I, maybe you're retired maybe you're a student maybe you're a stay-at-home parent and so you're thinking well this doesn't really apply to me i want to stretch out our understanding of work as being whatever it is that you do with the productive hours of your day, whether it's paid or unpaid in the marketplace, in the home, whether it's volunteer work, whatever it is that you do, that's what I want you to think about as we continue to build our biblical theology of work. So here we are in the garden, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They've been commanded to work and take care of it. God is there. They're in perfect relationship with each other, with God, with the world. And God gives them just one boundary. He says, look, there's one tree in the garden that I'm reserving for myself. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you are not to eat from that tree. Everything else is is for you. But that tree I reserve for myself, Don't, don't touch it. And then we get to our second puzzle piece, the curse. Genesis chapter three opens up and things are looking great, right? Genesis one and two is beautiful. Things are going great. Adam and Eve are ruling and reigning alongside God. And then we get to chapter three and the evil one, the very embodiment of evil in the form of a serpent comes into the garden. And begins to cause Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and God's character. And tempts them to define good and evil for themselves. And to take from that tree that they were commanded not to take from. And Eve listens to the serpent and Adam along with her. And with their act of rebellion against God, sin is ushered into the world. Adam and Eve, they were created to rule and reign over creation. They were given authority, and yet they gave that authority away and were ruled over by the creation and ushered in the curse. I want to read to you Genesis 3, verse 16 to 19. This is God speaking. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. You will return now there's a lot in there that we could unpack but we just don't have time and that's not what we're going to focus on today but what i want you to notice is first that both the family and the field or the workplace are affected by the curse and the second thing i want you to notice is that work is not the curse sometimes i think we get this idea that like well work is so hard and so frustrating because it was part of the curse it was part of the effects of sin in the world and that's not the case Work was part of the blessing. God blessed Adam and Eve and told them to multiply and to fill the earth and to rule over it and to subdue and to do their kingly duties as image bearers of God. That was before sin entered the picture. So work is not the curse, but because of the far-reaching and toxic effects of sin, our experience of work and our relationship to work is affected. I love the Bible because it's so true to our human experience. If you read the wisdom books, you just go, yes, the Psalms, the Proverbs. We're going to read a a few verses out of Ecclesiastes in just a moment. And Ecclesiastes, this section that we're going to read, the author is reflecting on the reality of work under the sun is the phrase that he uses, or under the curse, outside of God. Listen to this and see if you don't resonate. This is uh, chapter 2, verses 17, and then 20 to 23. So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune." What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? Well, what they get is that all their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. And this too is meaningless. How many people can relate to that feeling? I know that I can. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve were created to rule they were created to partner with God to rule and reign over creation to take what started in the garden press it out to all the ends of the earth but Adam failed and then in the Old Testament we have the story of Israel and they just live out the same exact pattern of not trusting God and defining good and evil for themselves with disastrous consequences so Israel failed Look at our own history, look at human history, and all we see is the same thing again and again. I see it in my life, and I bet you see it in your life as well. Adam failed, Israel failed, I have failed, and you have failed. But the good news is that Jesus did not fail. Where we have failed, Jesus succeeded. And that brings us to our third puzzle piece of our biblical theology of work. we have the creation mandate, we have the curse, and now we have the cure, and that's Jesus. Jesus came to undo the sin of Adam and to reverse the curse that was present in Genesis chapter 3 because of the rebellion in the garden. I want to read Romans 5, 17 to 18 to you. This is Paul talking about and reflecting on Jesus and the undoing of the sin of Adam. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned, listen to that kingly royal language, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. What good news. Oftentimes when we meditate on Jesus and on his life and death and resurrection, we focus on his deity and his glory. And that is beautiful and our hearts do need to meditate on that. Jesus said, if you want to know what God is like, just look at me if you want to see the father look at me I am the exact image of God I am the visible image of the invisible God right but here's the thing Jesus didn't only come to show us what God is like he also came to show us what the true human is really like Jesus was also 100 percent human He was limited, like you and I are limited in our physical bodies, with our physical needs. He would get hungry and thirsty and tired. He knew what it felt like to be hurt, to be betrayed, right? He worked a job. He knew the frustrations of work. Jesus was the perfect human. He lived life that we live in his context, yet he did it perfectly and without sin. And because of Jesus, we are invited in to that new or really that old way of being human. We are invited to partner with him in our world, our little piece of the world, working to make the world a more beautiful and beneficial place for humans to thrive. But here's the thing. We all know that we're still struggling with the curse, right? Like we still experience what we just read about in Ecclesiastes. We feel that frustration, that disappointment, that just like the thorns and the thistles of what we do with our productive hours because we're living in the in-between. Jesus has won the victory. We know how the story ends, but we're not there yet. So the fourth thing that we need in our biblical theology of work is a good understanding of the conclusion. The conclusion. So we have the creation mandate, the curse, the cure, and then finally the conclusion. God's plan has always been to partner with us. From the very beginning, what we saw in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, God working with humans to make this garden-like world that's present in Eden a reality for the entire world. That's always been his plan. And God's plan, it cannot be thwarted. It will not be thwarted, regardless of what we see going on in the world around us, regardless of our own experience in our work lives, our productive hours, whatever that looks like for you. The final story is beautiful, it's beautiful. I want to read to you. We're we're going to look. We started at the very beginning in Genesis 1. We're going to go all the way to the end of the Bible. Last week, Scott taught about Revelation and the way that we can approach the book of Revelation. So keep that in your mind as we look at two passages of Scripture from the very end of the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible. The first one I want to read to you is Revelation 21. It's verses 22 to 25. I did not see a temple in the city, This is John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb, that's Jesus, is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Now listen, In this beautiful vision that John has of the renewal of all things, the curse is completely broken. Everything that is evil and corrupted and broken in the world is now gone. But here's the thing that I think we really need to hang our hats on for a second is verse 24. The cumulative good of human history... The art, the music, the beauty, the food, the community, the innovation. Somehow God is going to take that cumulative good of human history and it is going to be present in some way in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse 24 says that the nations will walk by its light and that the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. That's pretty incredible. What we do now has eternal effects. There will be some elements of the kind of lives we're living today that can be present in the new heaven and the new earth. I want to read you one more section out of now the very last chapter of Revelation. This is Revelation 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They, that's us. We will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give us light and we will reign forever and ever. The vision presented here at the very end of our Bible is just dripping with allusions back to the garden. Back to Genesis one and two, but it's not exactly the same. In Genesis one and two, we have Adam and Eve in a garden, right? But in Revelation twenty one and twenty two, we have humanity in a garden city, to use Mark Comer's uh, language. The garden was never meant to stay a garden. It was always meant to become a garden city where humans work alongside the rule and reign of Jesus to bring the kingdom of God into reality and that's a beautiful beautiful vision the whole world will be transformed by the life death and resurrection of jesus and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth that is not boring sometimes i think in our western evangelical church we have this idea of eternity being like we just hang out on the clouds and listen to harp music and don't do anything all day does anybody relate to that like any is it me alone i remember being a little kid and being like i don't i don't want to go to heaven because boring. Like that sounds boring, right? And that's so far from the vision that John has in Revelation that we see. We are not going to be bored. We are going to be working and loving and laughing and eating and dancing and learning and growing and exploring all in perfect relationship without sin, without brokenness, without pain. It is amazing. It is a beautiful, beautiful hope but here's what happens here's what happens so we get this biblical theology and we're like yes like I love, this is amazing. This is beautiful. Let's go and conquer the world. And then we get to Monday morning or Tuesday morning and we come crashing down into the reality of a job that maybe you don't want, that you would never have picked for yourself, that you've taken simply to be able to pay the bills or a lack of a job that you are desperate to find work and you have not been able to. Or in a season where for whatever reason, maybe you're staying home with young kids. Maybe you're a student in school. Maybe you are dealing with health issues that are keeping you from being able to, to pursue your passions and your dreams in the way that you want to. And this vision of working the way that God created us to work bashes up against the reality of our situation and leaves us being like, "Ugh, now what? So that's where I want to land the plane. We're going to move through these three points quickly, but I have three things that I think can help us face Mondays well. The first thing is we need to stop categorizing the sacred versus the secular. This idea that there are spiritual things that are good and that God cares about and that God is active in, and then there are secular things or worldly things or material things that just don't really matter this is such a dangerous way of thinking and it is alive and well in the church today and we need to undo it this has its roots all the way back to before the time of jesus it's kind of like modern day gnosticism and it's just flat out wrong you know if you search the hebrew bible the old testament for the word spiritual it it literally doesn't exist like you won't be able to find it and the reason is because to the Hebrew mind it was all spiritual There was nothing that did not matter to God there was no part of life that did not matter to God and we know that our lives as important as it is for us to have a a healthy prayer life to be a part of a church community to be studying the scriptures to be sharing the gospel with people All of that is really, really important, and I hope it is a regular part of your life. But if you think that that's the only place where your discipleship to Jesus matters, then you're missing out because the majority of our lives are spent in the non-spiritual stuff. The majority of our lives we spend working, running errands, changing diapers, mowing the lawn, exercising, walking the dog, going to the grocery store, all of these things that make up the majority of our life, Jesus cares about deeply. He wants every last square inch of your life. And he is longing for you to recognize his activity and his presence in the most mundane areas of life, including your work. In Colossians 3.17, Paul writes, and whatever you do, Whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, whatever you do. So stop separating the sacred and the secular. There's no dividing line there anymore. And then the second thing that we can do to approach our Monday morning, our productive hours well, is to view our work as unto Jesus. It doesn't matter what your productive hours are made up of, unless what you are doing is sinful, unless you are contributing to the abuse or the degradation or the oppression of people, it doesn't matter what your job is, you can do it unto Jesus for the glory of God. In uh, the same chapter in Colossians chapter 3, Paul is talking about relationships and people living in all kinds of different relationships. And he speaks specifically to slaves. Now, slavery in Paul's day is not the same as our country's ugly history with slavery. So don't think that slavery in this time was more like indentured servitude, but it was still not fun. If you were an indentured servant or a slave during this time, you had like the worst of the worst jobs. But listen to what Paul says to these people and think about these words as applying to you in your work, whatever it is, and especially if your work right now, your productive hours are a little bit frustrating to you. This is what he writes. Slaves, obey your earthly masters In everything. And do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord and not for human masters. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. When my son Owen was a toddler, he was like two to three years old, and he loved the trash truck I mean loved the trash truck trash day in our neighborhood was Wednesdays and I'm not kidding Wednesday was like Christmas morning every single week for Owen he loved the trash truck we would get the bigger kids off to school and like it would be a race home the trash guy usually came at like 8 30 in the morning and the kids school started at 8 so it was like we gotta get we gotta get home no errands Wednesday mornings we gotta get home to see the trash truck And we would wait in the living room and Owen would be able to hear when the the truck would start coming down the street and he would run to the door and we would stand there and wait. And our trash man was so incredible. Like he knew how much owen looked forward to seeing him every week he would smile if he had enough time he would get out of his car and give owen high fives um owen would always go like this and he would like honk his horn you know for for him we had a really bad windstorm one time and the trash cans had all blown over trash was everywhere and i pulled into our driveway from dropping the kids off and i was running a little bit late and so the trash man was already on our street and he was out of the trash truck picking up the garbage bags that had blown out of trash cans and tossing it in to his truck. And I remember telling um, my husband, Joel at the time, like, I feel like this guy has to follow Jesus. Like who would do their job with this amount of joy and integrity if they weren't working as unto the Lord? And I don't know if he was actually following Jesus or not, but like, I suspect that he was, it doesn't matter what your job is. You can do it as unto the Lord. And then finally, look forward to your reward. When Paul continued the verses that we just read after saying, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, he goes on in verse 23, or I'm sorry, 24 and says, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Why should you work at whatever you do with all your heart? Because you know that you are building up an, an inheritance in eternity. It's not wrong. Sometimes in our Christian mindset, we get an idea that if we do something for any sort of benefit to ourselves, that like negates the good act. You know what I mean? And I get why we feel that way. There's some validity around that. But Paul's telling us right here, hey, The reason you should work at whatever you do with all your heart is because you are building up an inheritance your reward is waiting for you i heard somebody make a really funny joke one time they said yeah the good news is that whatever you do in this life you've got you've got a big reward coming if you do it as unto the lord you got a big a big reward coming but the bad news is that you can't cash in your paycheck until you die (laughs) i thought that was funny But the reality is, we really are in our life here and now. We are working for a reward. What we do today, just may end up affecting all of eternity. I want to work that way. Dallas Willard. I, I love Dallas Willard. He's a great theologian, and he calls this mindset training for reigning. We are training right now in what we're doing right now for what's to come at the renewal of all things. And it's not only Paul who talked about our reward he is not the only one jesus himself talked about this in matthew 25 and in luke 19 we have two very similar parables if you're familiar with the parable of the talent right in this parable jesus tells this story about a king who came to some of his servants and he said look i'm going to give you five bags of gold and i'm going to give you two bags of gold and I'm going to give you one bag of gold. And then the king went away for a long time, and he left the servants to invest those bags of gold well. And then after a long period of time, the the master comes back and he says, okay, I'm going to call you to account. I want to know what did you do with what I gave you? And the servant who was given the five bags, he said, well, I actually, I invested this and now I have 10 bags. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a little. Now you're going to be given more. Come and enter into your master's joy. And then he goes to the servant that he gave the two bags to. And he says, hey, how'd it go? What'd you do with what I gave you? And the servant says, well, I took those two bags and they became four bags now. And the master again says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a little. I'm going to give you more. Welcome into my joy. But the servant that was given the one bag of gold... Not only did he not do anything, but he lost everything. I want us to spend our lives, our productive hours, our working days in such a way that we hear well done, good and faithful servant, right? What we do matters. God has not put you where you're at by mistake. No matter what you are doing right now, no matter how frustrated you might be in whatever job you have, whatever productive hours look like for you, it is not a mistake that you are where you are right now. God has a plan and a purpose. He wants to use you, your specific gifts, your specific outlook, your specific personality to take what started in the Garden of Eden and continue building towards that garden city to rule and reign alongside Jesus for the benefit of people so that people can know the goodness of God. People can experience his grace and his peace and his love and his forgiveness and his hope. And you and I are invited to be a part of that, to live in such a way that where we are, God is. That our presence in our workspace means God's presence in our workspace. So let's, here's, here's how I want to end. I want you to stand up and I want you to actually shout out. I want to hear what your productive days are made up of, whether it's the industry you work in or the job that you work in. Go, go ahead and shout it out. Ministry, IT, I need to hear some more. Nurses. Education, caregiver, service. Okay, in all of these spaces, how mind blowing is it to think that we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus, that it is through us that God is building his kingdom in the workplace, in the education system, in the healthcare system, serving other people, caring for other people on the construction sites as you're working on cars and computers, doing data analysis maybe. In all of those spaces, we are experiencing and building the kingdom of God alongside Jesus. We are partnering with him. That is not something to take lightly. We are gonna go into communion in just a minute, but before we do that, I just wanna pray a blessing over us. When somebody gets the call to go into ministry or go into the mission field, so often they're commissioned with prayer and blessing, but we should do that for everybody, for teachers, for data analysis, for doctors, for nurses, for construction workers, whatever it is that your job is, I wanna pray a blessing and a commission over you as we prepare to go into communion. So let's pray. Jesus, you are magnificent and your work in the world, what you did through your life and your death and your resurrection is incomparable. And the fact, Jesus, that you invite us into your presence, into your life, to partner with you, to rule and reign and work on this earth, in this specific time, in this specific place, in order to make your name known so that people can experience the goodness of the gospel. That is just so humbling and so exciting. So God, I just pray over every person in this room and every job that they're walking into on Tuesday morning, God, that you would give us a vision for work, a biblical vision of our work, that you would inspire us and excite us to do our work in such a way that we take those Eden principles, those kingdom principles, and we actually see them begin to infuse our communities, our offices, our neighborhoods, our home, our schools, our healthcare systems, every facet of our society. Let us be conduits of your presence of your power in the world around us. We ask this in your name, giving you all the praise and all the glory, amen and amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Kristen. We're gonna go into communion and we have the communion elements uh, up here and there's some in the back. Just remember as we take communion, we're remembering what Jesus did for us. He told us to do this. And we're reminded of the gospel. We're reminded that we're forgiven. We're reminded that we have hope. And so, um, and when you take communion, you're taking it by faith. You're agreeing with Jesus that he is Savior and Lord. And it's a reaffirming of our understanding of his commitment to us and our allegiance with him. So why don't you move? grab the elements, go back to your seat, and then we'll take them together after we sing this song. Paul writes in first Corinthians he says for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed he took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me let's take the bread In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the Lord Jesus, thank you for what you have secured for us. We agree and say thank you. And we really, Lord, ask that you would make us aware of your grace this week. And as we work, let, may it be worship unto you in everything that we do, whether it's school, study, taking care of kids, volunteering, volunteering hobbies. May it all be unto you. We thank you for your joy in Jesus name. Amen.